0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Matt Gazarian.
1: And I'm Zeynep Azhar
0: And we're here today speaking with Ahmed Ersoy and Denis Turkar. Welcome to the podcast. Hi.
1: Hi. Thank you for having us.
0: Ahmed Ersoy is a previous OHP guest and a professor of history at Bosphorus University, where he teaches and works on late Ottoman cultural history, theory, and history of visual culture, and the historiography of art history in the Ottoman Empire in Turkey. Denis Turkar also a podcast veteran, is a CIS Research and Outreach Associate and Affiliated Lecturer in the History of Art and in the Asian and Middle Eastern Studies Departments at the University of Cambridge, Pembroke College. She focuses on 19th century Ottoman material culture, including art, architecture, and landscape transformations. Today we'll be talking about their exhibition, Ottoman Arcadia, the Hamidian Expedition to the Land of Tribal Roots, at the Coach Research Center for Anatolian Civilizations in Istanbul. They curated the exhibition with Bahattin Öztuncay and a large team as well, none of whom could join us today. Ottoman Arcadia shows the photo albums of Sultan Abdulhamid II, who in 1886 commissioned a team of prominent photographers and painters to document early Ottoman settlements in the South Marmara region, said to be the birthplace of the Ottomans as a dynasty. The mission covered areas of the South Marmara region, including the cities of Bursa, the empire's first capital, along with Yenishihir, Iznik, Söt, and Bozuk. The team produced a large collection of matted photographs, handwritten notes, descriptions of the region's settlements, its landscapes, its architecture, along with documentation on the region's semi-nomadic tribes. First, we'll ask Deniz and Ahmed for some historical background of the expedition itself, what conditions encouraged such an expedition, where did it take place, what did they do, and why Sultan Abdülhamid II ordered the expedition in the first place. Then we'll shift topics to talk about photography, visual representation, and the Yıldız Palace visual archive.
1: So the exhibition Ottoman Arcadia focuses on an Ottoman expedition to South Marmara region in 1886. Can you tell us more about the expedition, Who were the people involved? What was their actual mission? And how did they carry it out? In eighteen eighty-five,
2: Abdulhamid decides to create a new sub province within the Hudavendigar province. Um, and he calls calls it very aptly the Arturul sub province.
0: Hudavendigar. That's Bursa, right?
2: Not really. So Bursa is actually the capital or the center of the Hudavendigar vilayet, which is a, a, a much larger administrative region. And Bursa, again, is the capital or the, the center of that of that vilayet. That. And so within this Hüdavendigar province, they establish a new sub-province called Arturul. Um, and the center of Arturul sub sub-province becomes Bilecik, the city of Bilecik. And he, I think, soon thereafter sends out a group of artists and a, a leader of this commission out to document this new vilayet, or uh, to document this new sub-province. And within this group, we have uh, individuals who would later become uh, very prominent artists like Hoca Ali Rıza Efendi and Sururi le Ahmed Ahmet Emin and Ahmet Şekur, it's a team of 10 individuals uh, led by a um by a head chamberlain um Abdulhamid's, uh, one of abdul hamid's closest aides called mehmet emin who uh, is an interesting character um, in himself, um, he in in the 1870s actually takes a, a, a long uh, travel uh, to Central Asia and even over to India um, and leaves a, a travel account which is published in um, in, a, in an Ottoman uh, periodical at the time, which catches the attention of the palace and he's appointed the a librarian of Vildas Palace. And he eventually sort of translates French novels and reads them to Abdul Hamid, and they, I think, sort of uh, strike up an intimate intimate friendship. But he's a a man who loves to travel. He's very articulate uh, as a a travel narrator. And also he has an eye, a sort of an artistic eye of of vistas, of of geographies, of landscapes, and of of peoples. And we also found that through sort of um, digging into who he really is, uh, we find that he's interested in zoology, he's interested in ethnography, uh, and, and he publishes books on, on, on these burgeoning topics. These are new, sort of, late 19th century um, disciplines that are, uh, that are emerging. So it's very obvious why he's chosen to lead this exhibition. It becomes very clear that, that because of his interests, Abdul Hamid selects him to head this, head this team.
0: So, Abdul Hamid II, so they had this new Sanjak, this new sub province called Erturul. And he has this intimate relationship with this Mehmed Amin uh, that started because he was impressed by his travelogue work. And then he says, I'm going to pick you. You're going to lead this team of people and you're going to go, you know, go strike your stuff in Ertuğrul province. Like, show us what you've got for the Ottomans. You've done Central Asia, you've done India. Now I want you to do it for where the, the dynasty is from. Why does Abdul Hamid get interested in this sanjak at this mm-hmm. moment?
3: Well, there are several reasons, I think. One of them is very straightforward. I mean, the, the expedition is a knowledge-gathering mission. It's, it's, it's more or less an archival mission of fact-gathering. So what we have uh, at this period, you know, in, in, in terms of very practical infrastructural terms, is the project for establishing a new railway line, an Anatolian railway line, uh, because the European railways come to Istanbul, and it goes as far as Izmit uh, at this point. And by 1885, 1886, they're considering uh, building a new, quite extensive railway line that extends to Ankara and then to Konya, Ankara, Eskishir, Konya. And so that would pass through That the, the, the sub-province uh, would be the heart and core of the itinerary of the railway. Uh, So that's one reason. And what we were able to find is that we got hold of, through the uh, Prime Ministry Ottoman Archives, we got hold of the Expedition uh, Memorandum, which is an extremely detailed account of the agenda of the expedition and the kind of data that they were gathering. Uh, So there's a lot of interest in gathering factual statistical data about the sub-province. It's Uh, demography, it's uh, agriculture, uh, and so on and so forth. So there is this aspect of interest in the sub-province. But also, on the other hand, actually from the early 1860s onwards, what we see is that the, probably in close connection to what was going on in Europe in terms of uh, nationalistic currents, the Ottomans developed a new renewed interest in their dynastic origins which was always there, of course, from the 15th century onwards. We have layers and layers of memory and historical narratives dealing with the early Ottoman past, which is something very important. You have the myth of creating this empire uh, from from a little clan. Uh, But nevertheless, in the 19th century, you have this renewed interest that has um, more proto-nationalistic overtones to it so there is a, an effort to go back to the very roots of the ottoman dynasty to find the essential constitutive components of ottoman identity quite a modern interest in digging up the roots and understanding what they are so i think i mean the the expedition we call it the suit expedition or the you know arturo sanjak expedition definitely has this agenda of basically gathering knowledge about the Ottoman, early Ottoman heritage and early Ottoman history. That's the main second component of the agenda.
1: So how do they gather this knowledge? Because that's a very important component of the exhibition. Uh, what do they actually do once they get there?
2: Well, I think as as Ahmed um, said, this memorandum told us a lot about the very physical aspects of how this information was gathered. We actually can trace through this memorandum the exact route they take to get to all the different sites. It takes about two weeks to gather this information. And as as Ahmed also suggested, there are um, no railway lines at this point, so they are actually... Ten of them, or maybe twelve of them, um, on various different sort of animals, or or, or on foot, uh, gathering information, um, going from town to to city, and it seems to us that that Bursa and Bilecik are these Bursa, Bilecik and Eskisehir actually three cities are are their hubs. They they rest there, they reside there, and they the, they go out on sort of on day quests to these towns where they um, they survey because these artists, as I said become sort of very sort of celebrated Ottoman artists are at this point um, military school teachers and school of engineering teachers. And they're, they're experts in surveying and land surveying. So they're, they're doing that. They are taking photographs. Um, they're taking incredible photographs. In fact, there are a lot of incredible panoramas inside these albums. And um, I think we haven't yet said, but accompanying the memorandum that that gives us a sense of what this expedition looks like we also have um, captions, occasionally quite ex- expansive captions underneath photographs that are informative, uh, like in, in the memorandum, informative in, in demographics, in the economic structures, in the infrastructural conditions of these areas that they visit. But also, um, occasionally, they become very personal. You get a sense of, of them experiencing difficulties as they're crossing through rivers or mountain passages. But also, occasionally, um, um there is historical information, so we'll be looking at a panorama, a very breathtaking panorama of an otherwise underpopulated uh, mountainscape, and then the the caption writer, which we assume is Mehmet Emin, is telling us of a of a, you know of an early Ottoman um, battle scene or uh, a love story or Osman Gazi meeting Sheikh Edebali, and 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 so. Um, the expedition itself is not done for one specific purpose. That is to um, to survey this new subprovince. The people involved in uh, gathering this information know that the information will will be used for multiple different purposes. I think that's one of the most interesting aspects of this exhibition is is precisely that that the individuals involved in this project um, know that what they Produce will be used for different purposes. Um, they're aware of that because I think that that is uh, a, a thing about Hamid as a patron is 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 that he values information's potential to be repurposed.
3: Just to add to that, uh, the, the photographs were not the only product uh, of the expedition. So, you know, we did some archival tracing uh, for the expedition. Uh, and we were a- able to find uh, for instance uh, oil paintings that were based on photographs which were also considered to be one mode of knowledge gathering at that point they also produced maps which you know we couldn't get a hold of uh, but uh, we also found some charcoal drawings of ancient remains for instance that were done uh, by the painters uh, in the team so it's a uh, along with the memorandum itself we have a multimedial uh, mode of production based on the expedition
0: so we have this team led by Mehmed Amin they are producing panoramas all, all sorts of other photography but as you said also charcoal drawings survey data the the information going into all the captions for all of this statistics whatever as you said there's kind of two faces, at least two faces to this project. One is very practical. We need to send our instructors from the military school to survey this land for infrastructure investment. But then on the other hand, we're interested in this place because it's the seat of our historical, mythical origins. Abdul Hamid II gifts three albums from the, the photographs produced on this survey to the German Chancellor Bismarck. Why does he give these albums to him? And how does this relate to the broader kind of Ottoman-German diplomacy that's going on here? Because I think it's interesting. It can tell us something about Ottoman-German relations, but also something about the role of photography in diplomacy at this time.
2: So at this point in time, the Ottomans are trying to really court the um, Germans to... um, Help them out with the with the railway projects, basically to to finance um, and to help build the Anatolian railway lines. We we also very quickly realized that that Mehmet Emin through archival um, documents that Mehmet Emin is involved in this courtship in this sort of diplomatic economic courtship to get the Germans to um, um, to to come over and help lay lay the rails. So the photograph albums are. In some ways, a byproduct, so sort of a cultural byproduct of this um, of this economic courtship, and, and really in 1889, they they do start um, building these um, the, the railway lines that uh, that they symbolically graft uh, in the in the photograph albums. So in in some ways, when when and if Bismarck turned the pages of these albums, um, that the Ottomans hoped that the that that Bismarck would um, would be able to see the route of this potential railway line. And then also um, that we do know quite a lot. there's there's a lot of scholarship on uh, Abdul Hamid II's uh, so sort of friendship with with Wilhelm II. We see them side by side. we uh, w- um, we have buildings built for um, Wilhelm within Yıldız palace and beyond. Um, so that relationship is is clearer to us historically. but the earlier dynamics of the Ottoman German relationship wasn't. and so this actually gave us a kind of a glimmer of what, uh, what uh, what early on this sort of newly um emerging German empire's relationship with the Ottomans looked like. Um, but the question of whether Bismarck actually sat down and looked at these albums and said something about them is very is,
3: unlikely. is 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 is, <laughs> is not there,
2: and it's it's very unlikely. and and occasionally, when we um present uh this exhibition to viewers they this is one of the first questions that they ask is is what did he think of these albums well we you know we don't know but all we know is that that at least his retinue liked it enough to um uh, uh, and think thought it was a good investment to to um to join in with the um the the railway project
3: so the uh, the important thing for us was that you know the these three albums were acquired uh, for the Koch collection and then doing archival research, we realized that there were at least nine more similar albums, products of the expedition, that were placed uh, in the Istanbul University's um, rare collections, uh, which is basically the, the Yıldız Palace collection. Uh, so we uh, realized that the expedition yielded this you know, range of albums, with similar recurrent photographs grouped in different ways. And then, apparently, from among these um, 12 albums, uh, they picked three up as representative uh, samples of the expedition and sent them. So it, the expedition and the albums were not prepared with the aim of you know, gifting to uh, the German chancellor, but that was kind of a byproduct that came in handy at mm-hmm. this point in
1: time. Uh, why were the Germans specifically at this point chosen? Was there a specific reason for like for if this is a sort of the precursor to the re- relationship that Abdul Hamid has with Wilhelm II? Why were the Germans chosen at this specific point in sort of 1886? Uh, in the exhibition, you talk about sort of um, how how Bismarck became an important figure after the Berlin Treaty in um, 178.
2: So it's a, it's a great question. I I um I will. I will try to answer it. I don't think this will sort of cover all of why why the Ottomans are seeking a, a sort of diplomatic alliance or an economic alliance with Germany. But I do think that after 1877-78 Otto, Ottoman-Russian um, war, um, the only reasonable alliance they can think of in Europe is is one with Germany. I think that that France is out, and certainly France is out. Then um, then England is also out because they are. They really hold the sort of imperial sort of power base uh, and 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 balance in Europe, uh, and they're they're their competitors, they're the the prime competitors. And so um, really, I think that that the Ottomans are left with a newly formed German empire that is that is wealthy, wealthy enough to actually come in and sponsor uh, a grand industrial project such as, railway lines um, and I think that ten, and we do know from you know the, the Ottoman Arcadia exhibition has a book and there's a, a great short but great article by Sinan Kunera up there that talks about the uh, that talks about Bismarck's uh, opinions about the Ottoman Empire they're not necessarily bright and shiny. I mean, he's not a huge fan of, of fully investing it diplomatically and economically with the Ottomans, but I think the, that Wilhelm II coming in as the Kaiser at this point in time and really sort of um, becoming the real decision-maker in, in the German Empire uh, really shifts the balance and uh, tips the balance over to to um, coming in and, and, and uh, building this, this thing.
3: Yeah, no, I mean, it... it, it it seems that the, an Ottoman-German alliance would kind of constitute an alternative to Western European hegemony at this point. And that, that I mean, I, I, I don't want to sound teleological, but yeah. this is the way that leads to the Wilhelm friendship and then to the First World War and so on and so forth.
0: Thanks very much. We will continue shortly after a music break. Welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Matt Gazarian, here with Zeynep Azerbadigan, interviewing Ahmed Ersoy and Denis Türker about the 1886 Ottoman expedition to Ertuğrul province in the South Marmara region. So, to shift gears a little back to the content of the materials they produced, the photographs and the drawings, etc. One thing I was struck by in the exhibition at Anamed was the presence of Native American pictures, and I was struck by how the the sort of similarity after seeing all these pictures of tribes in the soad region, how when you put them next to these pictures of Native Americans, ethnographic pictures from the U.S., that, you know, this, the similarity is kind of striking. Could you talk a little bit about tribal or ethnographic photography during this period?
3: Um, okay, well, um, let me start by pointing out the types of photographs that we encounter taken at the ex- uh, expedition. So you have um, landscapes, very dramatic landscapes, uh, cityscapes, Architecture, monuments, basically photographs of monuments. Uh, And then the fourth, and I I think the most uh, original and striking striking component, uh, is the ethnographic photographs of natives uh, to the region, uh, mostly Turkmen uh, semi-nomadic populations inhabiting the province and the sub-province. So these um, ethnographic photographs tell us that the Ottoman photographers had a very deep understanding of the scientific norms of anthropological photography uh, at this period Uh, this is confirmed by what we find in the hamidian archives um, the the visual archives that is uh, where you have a series of albums um, ethnographic albums that were taken by russians by um, you know ethnographers in the british raj uh, by the american ethnographic bureau so you have all of these basically collected uh, in the Hamidian archive and the photographers and the clerks had access to this archive. It was a working mobile uh, archive. So the, um, and the very format of the photographs of the region's Turkmens actually conforms squarely uh, to the norms of ethnographic photography uh, at this period. So there's a very strong claim for scientific legitimacy were producing scientific data so you would have um, this uh, for instance uh, genre of types ethnographic types where you either have groups of two or three that are posed against a blank wall or you have larger groups in their natural habitats natural uh, settings the, these are the two major uh, basically components of the types genre that we know uh, from uh, ethnographic photography at this period so there's a very uh, strong effort to uh, record uh, the native tribal existence uh, in the region by means of the you know the empirical claims of this new technology photography and what we know i mean I, this is a detail that um, just as the uh, the team departed uh, the expedition team departed in april of 1886 these cases of Photographs and books arrived from the US president as gifts to Sultan Abdul Hamid. And for months or maybe even years, he was pleading uh, the, uh, the president to send him photographs of Native Americans. This is what he explicitly demanded. This we know through the memoirs of the American consul in Istanbul. And then Samuel Cox talks about the very moment that the boxes were uh, opened and Abdul Hamid just opens these these albums and he is thrilled he's just he spends these hours scrutinizing these photographs and stereographs of native americans and Samuel Cox is basically wondering why this intense interest in the natives and he's uh, Semi-Orientalistically, maybe he's saying, well, maybe he's, he sees some affinity with his own Tartaric roots uh, as he's, you know, so much interested in these natives.
1: So why is there an interest in um, ethnographically sort of uh, recording these tribes specifically?
3: Uh, so normally what we have in uh, documents, archival documents, is a disparaging and condescending view of nomads, peasants, uh natives. Uh, but in this case, when we're talking about these particular groups, um, it seems that Abdul Hamid and other uh, members of Ottoman intelligentsia at this point saw a genealogical connection between these people and the early Ottomans. And in a again in an in an orientalistic sense, they felt that these people were the unsullied remnants of a distant, lost medieval past. So this expedition, in a way, was a a spatial journey as well as uh, a a temporal journey uh, for the expedition members because they thought they were going to this frozen, unchanged medieval past. And you can see that from the memorandum, from the captions. You can see that they were fascinated to find these... um, (coughs) Uh, narratives, oral narratives that were circulating among the natives, their lifestyles and their clothing, very palpable links with the distant early Ottoman past. So um, on the level of um, um, the ruling elite, I think for Abdülhamid, it was very important to find the genealogical link. Uh, with his own dynastic origins uh, with these people Uh, when we also know that he uh, assigned his head uh, librarian suleiman hasbi to do research on major dynastic families in anatolia uh, and these tribal groups to find uh, traces uh, of connection to the early ottoman family Uh, and on a broader Again, more proto nationalistic level, you can say that there's an interest in these people uh, because uh, there's a rising interest in the early stages uh, of the Ottoman dynasty, uh, the Ottoman state, and they wanted to know how these. Late medieval, um, uh, you know, uh, warriors lived, and uh, you know the encounter with the natives was a form of a, a moment of first contact almost, uh, where they uh, became more aware of the realities of the uh, lost medieval past.
2: And I, I just want to add to that, the sort of intellectual component to this imperial quest. Um, starts around the 1860s where uh, with individuals like Ahmed Vefik Pasha, who uh, at some point is the governor of, of Bursa, these are sort of solid Tanzimat figures who are employed in 1850s, 1860s to writing, rewriting the history of, uh, of the Ottomans. Um, they actually do f- sort of write, you know, um, school books and historical chronicles again. And during their quest to r- sort of Rewriting this this dynastic history, they become deeply interested in the constituent languages of the early Ottomans, and they land on Turkish and and the Çatalhöyük languages. And so I think underneath this um, this what would become a, an imperial quest is a is a linguistic interest that also sort of then gets conjoined with an ethnographic interest. And we do know, for instance, that Mehmet Emin is mentored at some point by Ahmet Vifik. And when you do, in fact, um, read Mehmet Emin's own uh, travel log to Central Asia, you very clearly from the get-go see his interest in the Turkmens, uh, the the tribal sort of nomads of Central Asia, writes about their manners and customs, and also includes nifty glossaries of the way they speak, of certain phrases, um, um, the way they look. And so, it, you know, what I want to say is that really the, um, um, the origins of this quest are, are are with the rewriting of Ottoman history um, post-Tanzimat, I would I would yeah. say.
3: And if I may add to that, it's uh, also, you have to consider that we're talking about a seriously shrinking empire that's losing its European territories. Uh, so from especially from the 1870s and eighties onwards, we're talking about the realization of the empire becoming more Muslim and more Turkish. So uh, many scholars talk about this, including Selim Derengil and Kemal Karpat, that uh, you know from the 1870s and 80s onwards, uh, many Ottoman bureaucrats start talking about the Turkish ethnic element within the empire as a leading force that has the right and the capacity to lead the empire's other um, ethnic groups. Uh, so there's a, a, a rising awareness and you know both on the intellectual academic and and political level about the roots uh, of ottoman identity and about the very proto-nationalistic interest in the very turkishness mm-hmm. turkish ethnic element that's embedded there mm-hmm.
2: and i i think that that what the photograph albums especially the uh, the ethnographic imagery um show us is that abdulhamid the second period is often known as the sort of the pan-Islamic turn. But in fact, w- what the exhibition really tries to show is in fact that it's also a, pan- a, a pan-Turkic turn. So, you know, uh, what we deeply associate uh, with the young Turk appeal to Turkishness or uh, desire to convey the Turkish identity actually, actually I think, has, uh, has origins in, in, in this period
3: one of our aims is to seriously interrogate this very simplistic linear scheme of politics of identity that starts with the Tanzimat. You have a more cosmopolitan, inclusive Ottomanist identity. And then with uh, Abdul Hamid comes pan-Islamism as, a, as an international and domestic strategy. And then with the young Turks, it's, the, you know, the Turkish nationalism kicks in. Uh, well, apparently, we have a much more complex, layered, laminated form of politics of identity going on where, yes, pan-Islamism was there uh, as, a, as a broader strategy, but it was interwoven with this early interest in proto-nationalistic interest uh, in Turkishness as well.
1: So following on sort of ethnographic photography, the last section of the exhibition talks about the silences in the photography and how non-Muslims, uh, many Greeks and Armenians in the living in this region, uh, they are absent from the photos. Can you talk about these absences and also another absence that sort of we... Uh, realize when we're looking that there are very few women actually uh, portrayed in these photographs.
3: There had been several calamities uh, in the second half of the 19th century. You have a major earthquake uh, in 1855 that devastates uh, the entire province. Uh, And then especially after the 1877-78 war, uh, you have refugees, you have Uh, immigrants uh, coming in from the Balkans as well as uh, from the Caucasus. Um, So you have a lot of tensions built up in the region. Uh, You have several ethnic groups, Muslim and non-Muslim ethnic groups. You have tensions between these people, uh, as well as contacts, of course. Uh, You have uh, tensions between the settled and the nomad. uh, And through the 19th century, uh, of course, a lot of Nomadic groups were settled uh, by the state, especially during time of Ahmed Vefik Pasha when he was the governor. And then you have tensions building up between the n- new immigrants, the new migrants uh, and the settled uh, population, uh, the inhabitants of the region. So there's a lot of this uh, going on, which we can trace uh, from the documents, even uh, from the memorandum, uh, you know, you see uh, signs of this. uh, And this is nowhere to be found in the the, archives, in the albums, in the photographic albums. So I think that the albums are giving, what the albums are providing us is, the hegemonic truth uh, of the Hamidian era. It's Abdülhamid's alternative reality where the entire region, especially the sub-province, you know, with the aim of turning the sub-province into a heritage site, an Ottoman heritage site, I think they're trying to portray it as the ultimate Turkmen kind of homeland. And uh, this is exactly what you see in the photographs. You don't even see many... Uh, Urban inhabitants, uh, the the majority of ethnographic photographs are from the um, semi-nomadic populations uh, of the region. Um, Some women are involved, uh, mostly children, but uh, I think according to the norms of Ottoman, you know, conformism uh, at this point, to a large extent, women uh, were uh, not included in the photographs.
2: But to, to add to that, um, again, to, to move away from the imperial sort of cleansing act uh, of, of turning this province into a, um, a largely Turkmen, Turkic um, space, um, is when you read, again, Mehmet Emin's, um, travel log to Central Asia, he he's a romantic writer first and foremost and and i think that uh that anyone who's interested in this sort of beautiful sort of um romantic travelog traditions um they should pick this this volume up but in it he talks a lot about Turkoman women um a lot on tribal uh, Turkoman uh women and and paints them in a really glorious uh light as women who are equal to men who have um um, characteristics that are that are bold, they are virtuous, they are beautiful, they are um, um, warrior-like. And so in as much as in the uh, imperial photograph albums, you don't necessarily see m- much of these women, at least that members of the expedition, including uh, Mehmet Emin, I think approach them uh, in in the way that I think we would as historians like for them to approach them. So
1: and uh, you talked about also establishing this site as a heritage site uh there were also photos of like reviving the pilgrimage to erdogan's tomb uh, can you talk more about that and like how that uh, actually came about and why they did that
3: right so the uh, tomb of arthur uh who was the progenitor of the dynasty the father of osman ghazi uh the founder of the ottoman dynasty um his tomb uh, was perhaps when we consider the sub-province the most sacred site, uh, the most revered site uh, among different communities in the region. We know that it was not only the Turkmen nomadic groups, but also uh, the Greek and Armenian communities uh, in the region that uh, regularly visited the site. So it was a ceremonial, sacred ceremonial center uh, of pilgrimage almost. Uh, And then what happens is that during the expedition, the expedition members experience this first contact moment where they see a particular tribe, the Bozoyuk Turkmens that that belong to the broader uh, Karakichili tribe, present themselves as inheritors of the Arturo legacy. They say that they use the same summer and winter pastures that the early Ottomans used. They say that they are connected to the prestigious Kayı, branch uh, of the uh, Oghuz nation which fits in perfectly to the myth of early ottoman origins so these people although most of these nomads that we know uh, the karakechili people uh, we know they were moved from central anatolia into the marmara region in mid 19th century so they're relative newcomers to the region nevertheless there was this uh, new interest it was the opportune moment uh, let us say to promote these people as the as the authentic remnants of the early ottoman past so what happens in the 1890s as the the new anatolian railway line is approaching this region is that abdul hamid orders the institution of a new ceremony uh, around the Arturul tomb uh, that was to be enacted by this particular tribe, the Karakichili clan. So in 1895, we have the first traditional ceremonial visit uh, paid by the Karakichili clan to the tomb of Arturul. And Immediately as it is enacted, the ceremony becomes a media event because Abdul Hamid sends his official photographer there. All different stages of the ceremony are photographed. Of course, it's a it's a revived uh, tradition, a revived ceremony that has become very formal and you know Sunni oriented, state oriented. And the the photographs uh, then are turned into an album that is now housed in uh, the Yildiz collections uh, and then also served to the journal, illustrated journal Malumat, uh, which was the mouthpiece of the regime at at this time with a very long um, uh, series of texts uh, that detail the ceremony. And then it Becomes, I think, one of the longest surviving official ceremonies that is still being maintained. Uh, every fall, the Turkish Prime Minister goes to the tomb of Atatürk, joins the Karakichili clan, and they reenact the same kind of uh, ceremony. So, what we're doing in the um, in the exhibition is that we, uh, you know, portray different aspects of this original media event uh, from the time of Abdulhamid, and we juxtapose these with footage from the Turkish radio and television documentaries, where uh, we are uh, also showing different stages from the 1970s, 80s of how this ceremony unfolded in time.
0: So the album that they create out of the the ceremony and the pomp and circumstance that goes with this visit to Ertuğrul's tomb, along with all the other albums that they create are all housed in this Yıldız Palace collection. In the exhibition, it was mentioned on one of the placards that uh, an Ottoman subject at the time, Ismail Mushtaq, called the Yildiz Photography Collection a network of curiosity. Um, His words were, Merak Shebekese. So I was wondering if I could ask you to talk a little bit about this Yildiz Palace Collection. How did this photographic archive, this visual archive, come to be? How did it uh, come to be and what does it include?
2: What we call the Yildiz um, Visual Archive is not just a photography collection. When you visit um, the, the Istanbul University Rare Works Collection today, which kernel of which is precisely the the the, the Yildiz um, Archives post 1909 um, deposition of of, of Hamid, you actually see even in bound photograph albums um, lithographs. You see plans, you see sketches of of architecture of buildings and newspaper clippings. So it's in fact, the bulk of it, yes, is uh, is composed of photography, but but in fact it is a, a, a sort of a multimedia archive. And it's often when you go and I'll try to sort of um, uh, describe this with an example, often when you go to the Prime Minister's archives um, and if you're sp- especially scavenging for architectural information, um, you will often have encountered a text that will describe the, the construction of a building and it will refer to, it will often have this this term resim, you know, see, Bakanl's resim, you know, um, see, refer to um, uh, picture one, picture two, picture three, and those would never actually be a part of that file, a frustrating experience. And then if you do go to the rare works collection, you will in fact very often Find the visual equivalent of what what's described in um, in in the Prime Minister's Archives documents, um, and so we we realized also through this exhibition that um, that very judiciously images uh, visual material was archived in hopes of potentially reusing whatever that representation was. From you know, in, in in the first place, what is very clear to us now is that the Hamidian Visual Archive was a very dynamic space where, when and if a member of the court or Abdul Hamid needed to use an image, he would he would be able to go in and 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 quickly find uh, this thing for another project for another um, commission.
3: Yeah, so we're um, through the ex- we were trying to work through the texture and logic of the archive itself. So, part of our mission was to try to better understand how the archive worked. I think when we talk about the Hamidian visual archives, you know, people tend to first uh, think about the gift albums that were sent uh, by Abdul Hamid to the Library of Congress and, uh, and the British Library. These were Yes, part and parcel uh, of the archive, but this is like a minuscule fragment of the inchoate mass of visual material that we're talking about that constitutes the Hamidian archives. The the gift albums were studied much better, and we know much less uh, about how the broader archive worked. uh, What we're trying to underline here is the very condition of mobility and mutability that defines the, the Hamidian archive. You have a lot of material coming in uh, from the market, you know, um, photographs that were taken by commercial photographers, newspaper clippings, as Denis was saying, illustrated journals that are basically flowing into uh, the palace. These are compiled, uh, sometimes sorted with other sorts of data, like informers' reports. And then you have catalogs, furniture catalogs, um, uh, I don't know, like... uh, prefabricated building catalogs, and so on and so forth. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of hodgepodge mix of materials coming together. And then, uh, you know, what uh, we observe is that also it's not, this is not a kind of an archive that uh, is for there for the panoptic pleasures of the sultan. It is constantly used uh, and, and recirculated and remediated by the archival clerks. Uh, we see that a lot of the material seeps out of the archive it is serviced to the press and we see this a lot with the expedition photographs for instance when uh, you have you know um, uh, certain instances where 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 you need some publicity you send these images to newspapers and uh, and to the journals along with some texts involved so you have um, a lot of material flowing in uh, streaming into the archive and a lot of material seeping out of the archive so there's this constant circulation and remediation of material which uh, i think changes our notion and understanding of how photography operates we're not talking about a singular photograph that that could be placed in context and deciphered according to its visual content we're talking about these images that are constantly repurposed um, reprinted recirculated and then you have to look at each and every particular media situation in which the image is embedded to get a better sense of how it works how it appeals to people how it is perceived
1: Um, yeah so you discussed uh, sort of the circulation of uh, these visual materials they are coming from the market into uh, some of them are coming from the market into the palace. Some of them are produced by Abdul Hamid's um, officials. Commissioned, uh, yes. And are commissioned. And there are a lot, There are some gifted by different um, countries and people. So what can the Gilda's Archive tell us about circulation of visual knowledge in uh, and information, both within the empire and um, the larger sort of uh, globe? Because you have all of these stuff also coming from different countries into the archive.
3: It tells us, I think, about the very characteristics of a modern mode of knowledge gathering, where it's this intention of creating a comprehensive knowledge database and the very impossibility of it. You know, you have these fragments of circulating knowledge, visual or non-visual knowledge, and the intention is to bring them all together to get a an optic sense of the empire and the world, but then there are huge, practical, logistic, financial challenges that define the realpolitik of bureaucratic knowledge management. So we're not claiming that there's this amazing project of documenting everything in perfect order that's happening in the empire. It has a lot of gaps uh, but it's it's this very i think movement mobility mutability gaps that define a modern archive there's a lot of data trash involved a lot of the material gets Remains unused; it just sits there, yeah, you know, in the um, in the archive. Sometimes, you know, when there's an occasion, uh, they might be revived. So it's this very protean and messy nature of the archive that we're trying to explore, and I think we're only scratching the yes, surface exactly. here.
2: I mean, also, if you know, maybe to add to the add to that in terms of it of a physical space, there is not one single archive in Yilda's palace where they went in and grabbed the, the nifty folder on whatever subject they at that point in time needed. although I I think the library again was really barely scratching the surface of this entity as a as a space and, and and in terms of content. but there was not one single space, although the library I think housed much of the material. There was uh, a a bookbinding atelier. There were multiple other libraries um, within the palace, not just one that sat um, sort of outside, close to the administrative quarters. Um, So when in 1909, special commissions went in to Yildiz, um, after Abdul Hamid is made to leave, to uh, really figure out the contents of this uh, city-like space, you immediately encounter the lowly bureaucrats frustration with uh, with uh, how are we going to manage the amount of information that's coming and that's flowing out of cabinets of of repositories how are we going to sort of gather up all of what we need in order to really cleanse Ottoman history from the wrath of the, the, the despotic wrath of, of Abdul Hamid II it's precisely the the messiness and the the largeness of this archive that they 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 show their initial frustrations on.
0: And so when we talk about visual information circulating in the empire, we're talking about Abdul Hamid II is taking the, all sorts of visual material coming from, as you said, a hodgepodge, coming from commissioned photographs or expeditions like the one that the exhibition describes or clippings from newspapers, a picture that looked nice in an illustrated magazine, whatever. All of this information is coming in, but you also mentioned it goes out in particular ways. You said almost like a press kit that they say, you know, you're going to, you want to write about this newspapers? Here are some pictures for you that you can use. Here are the images that are sanctioned by us that will make sense for you. Is this the sort of circulation that we're talking about when we say it comes in, it goes out, and may even come back in again?
3: Definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, like One way that it happens is um, some photographs are chosen. If we take the expedition photographs, for instance, these are taken by official photographers, so they're not signed. They're never signed up until Ali Sami, I think. And then uh, if the palace or the administrators of the archive see some value to some of these photographs, they would give them to important commercial photographers like the Abdullah Frere they would take these photographs sometimes enlarge and reframe them and insert them in their own albums and collections these would either be gifted uh, as imperial albums uh, by the sultan or sometimes they end up end up being commercial albums which are then later bought by the archive and include re-included in the archive so remediated repurposed material circulates in the market and comes back to the archive as well but sometimes it's the sultan himself who sees an image in a piece of news in in, a, in the Penny Press, Illustrated Police News, for instance, which he was a fan, and then he services it to the press and you have to publish it. Uh, these are usually images that relate to the quote-unquote hypocrisy of the West. So when, for instance, the Armenians are being massacred in the East, he services this image of a black man being lynched uh, in the u.s in order to retaliate and say that you know see what you're doing so it happens in many ways it's also uh, sometimes the uh, government employees and clerks who had access to the material who service it uh, to the press and or use it in different ways so it happens in many ways so it's it's i think we have to dispel this image of the sultan as the architect mastermind who has full control of this material uh, and who uses it for his own informative purposes. It's much messier and more layered than this.
0: Well, doctors Ersoy and Türker, I'd like to thank you very much for joining our conversation today.
2: Thank you very much for having us. I think at this point we should add that um, the, um, um, the process of making this exhibition was a collaborative process. We had an incredible team at ANAMED, members of whom helped magically um, um, turn this sort of disparate archival bits and three albums into a, a coherent narrative. In six, seven short months. Uh, So, you know, a shout out to all of our wonderful collaborators at. And we're not just saying this out of courtesy. Exactly, it's true. It was a a working team effort. A very pleasurable experience, um, also. I mean, you know, we matched the uh, the ten person uh, expedition team of 1886, and we had a similar type of uh, experience.
3: Go buy the book.
0: (laughs) (laughs) For those of you who would like to find out more. We encourage you to come see the exhibition for yourself, Autumn in Arcadia, the Hamidian Expedition to the Land of Tribal Roots, at Anamed, the Coach Research Center for Anatolian Civilizations. We do also encourage you to pick up a copy of the book. Uh, it's an edited volume of the same title published by Anamed, and it includes works by our two guests today, as well as Selim Derengel, Berin Golunu, Reşat Kasaba, Sinan Küneralp, T.G. Ote, and Beatrice San laurent to stay abreast with podcast updates and new episodes, you can follow us online at ottomanhistorypodcast.com and also join our Facebook community of over 30,000 listeners. Thanks for listening, and until next time, take care.